ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's Playlist episode, we're featuring one of the latest interviews from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest experts and policymakers. Take a listen. Welcome to FP Live. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Good afternoon to you in the United States and good day to our viewers from around the world. We're at that time of the year where we're looking ahead to 2023. One country we all want to know more about is China. Its leadership is opaque, closed off, centralized. So it's important to try and understand how they're thinking, all the more so given how influential Beijing is to the global economy. In a moment, I'll bring in a superb panel of China watchers to gaze into their crystal balls. But first, a quick housekeeping note. If you're not an FP subscriber, join us. We have a great 40% discount going right now. It's easy to find on this site. Subscribers, however, get to watch these discussions on demand as well. They also have the opportunity to ask questions here. So please write in. I have some great ones from you already, and I'll use some of those in this discussion. So on to today's topic. China's had a very interesting 2022, to say the least. Beijing's every move this year seemed to be designed with one eye on the CCP Congress, where Xi Jinping would secure and did secure an unprecedented third term, sure enough. And promptly, he went on a series of travels to the G20 in Bali, to Saudi Arabia and more, as he caught up after a period of staying home in China. But travel hasn't been as easy for regular Chinese. And understandably, perhaps, protests broke out last month, criticizing not only the government's draconian zero-COVID policy, but in some cases, Xi Jinping himself. Beijing responded with crackdowns, but it later also moved to end several aspects of zero-COVID. Now, of course, COVID cases are on the rise in China, especially in the cities. And with that backdrop, one has to wonder, where is it all headed? What will China's 2023 look like? What are the main trends that we can predict? I want to discuss COVID, of course, but also the economy, trade, technology, and also, of course, foreign policy issues, including relations with the United States and Taiwan. To do all of that, let's bring in our terrific panel, Susan Shirk is chair of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego. She served as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs from 1997 to 2000. She is also the author of a terrific new book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise, 
we excerpted the book here at FP, so please click on the link uh, on this page uh, to read some of that later. Zoe Lu is a fellow for International Political Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Zoe is the author of Sovereign Funds, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambitions. And James Palmer is a deputy editor at Foreign Policy. He writes our weekly China Brief newsletter. If you haven't signed up for it already, please do. James is also the author of The Bloody White Baron, uh, good title, James, and The Death of Mao. They all sound like movies. Um, Susan, Zoe, James, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to FB Live. I'm especially grateful that the three of you um, have agreed to project forward to 2023. Predictions are a risky business, uh, um, but they're important nonetheless. So let's dive right in. James, I'll start with you. Um, COVID cases are on the rise in Beijing. How bad is it? It's very bad. Um, at this point, nearly half of everybody I know has COVID, and I, not just that they've you know got a cough or a, or a fever or other stuff that might be winter things. Most people stockpiled home tests in anticipation of this moment and have been able to confirm that they actually have COVID. Now, there's this surreal disjunction between the official numbers, which claim that they uh, the cases have been going down since zero COVID policy was ended, and the mass reporting um, of um, of extremely rapid spread just uh, we're talking you know caseload has to has to be coming close to doubling every day if these numbers are anywhere near accurate wow. uh, hospital calls have gone up by six times fever clinic visits have gone up by 16 times medical system seems to be just about holding together for the moment but you know we're we're just over a week since zero covid policy more or less ended and uh, we could be seeing, you know, hospitals swamped, I think, in the next uh, week or two. And just quickly, James, I mean, uh, is there data that we can trust, uh, not only in terms of cases, but potentially further down the line deaths? No, right at the moment, we're at a point of um, the, the sort of general opaqueness and darkness of Chinese numbers getting even worse when it comes to COVID. Uh, the official numbers are self-admittedly at this point not trustworthy. They could switch to a system whereby people self-reported, but I don't think they want to have those numbers which would look mm. just all the way up. Um, mm. Deaths they've consistently underreported since the start of the pandemic. Um, they've particularly seemed to have underreported them this year. I think the claim is that in the whole of China this year during all the outbreaks that necessitated shutting down Shanghai, shutting down huge parts of the economy. Um, they've only officially noted, uh, I, I think it's like less than 10 deaths or something like that. Um, there's a huge gap um, there. Now, China records flu deaths even before COVID mm. in a weird way. Um, mm. It record, it, it used to uh, appear to have very low flu deaths because the deaths were recorded as being from pneumonia, so the, the immediate kind of cause rather than the underlying rather than the underlying disease. Um, that's a, a well-established problem that Chinese doctors were talking about in their medical statistics, even in like 2017, 2018. So there may be some repetition of that. You may see COVID deaths being recorded as very low, but deaths from pneumonia and other and other symptoms of COVID um, shooting up. Even that, I think you'll only see when we get to drill down into the numbers once they're released in sort of six months, a year's time. Right. Susan, let me bring you in. I'm curious um, how you're reading where this might be headed over the next few months. I mean, obviously, if what James says about cases potentially doubling every day or so, um, that, you know, exponential growth will really sort of be 
the numbers then will be quite large by the time we get to January, February, and you know that's around about when we have Chinese New Year. Um, what is your sense of how the government would uh, manage this? Um, you know, in as much as they've admitted or begun to admit that zero COVID wasn't quite where they wanted to be uh, heading into 2023. Um, how are you watching uh, their response? Well, I'm watching to see if it's defensive and ideological or practical and effective. And uh, because uh, the problem with Xi Jinping's rule has been that it's been the former, not the latter. Uh, and that's a big difference from previous Chinese leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in this case, what we should look and see is, how, are they getting busy vaccinating uh, the older population? Are they going to be willing to accept the offers of donations of Western vaccines? You know, the U.S. government has offered very quietly, they haven't publicized this, hmm. because they want to make it possible for Xi Jinping to accept it. They don't want to humiliate him. But if I'm a, a middle-class person in China, I mean, many of those people are taking trips to Macau so that they can get a Western vaccine. Mm. So this is kind of uh, nationalism and xenophobia in a in a manner that really is harming the welfare of the Chinese people. So I'm I'm waiting for more specific plans of how they're going to address the spread of the disease now, especially uh, vaccinating people as well as therapeutics, all of which, of course, they could have done months, a year ago. And you know, it's really uh, a tragedy at, that compares to some of the tragedies of the Great Leap Forward mm. um, and uh, Cultural Revolution. When Mao had uh, what Deng Xiaoping called over-concentration of authority that led to tragedies for the Chinese people. And Susan, it's fair to say that, you know, people pin... Uh, good or bad responsibility for the response uh, directly on Xi Jinping, right? Because he he has said at the start that that this is something he is personally looking into. Oh, uh, well, he did more than that. He had the entire standing committee of the Politburo kind of stand up and biaotai, take a, a pledge of loyalty to him and this policy which he turned into a, a totem of his uh, wise authority. Mm. So let me bring you in. Um, my sense of uh, how one, any country has handled uh, COVID from the start in terms of policy is that there's a fair bit of risk assessment involved, um, but also assessing the risk appetite of people. Um, what are people willing to give up um, uh, and in return for what? And I guess this is part of a wider uh, conversation about the social contract in China. But is it your sense that with the, the protests last month, 
um, China's leadership may have recalibrated its sense of the risk appetite of its own people, um, or um, did it sort of reverse uh, zero COVID um, for other sets of reasons? What's your read on on how that happened and what it what it sort of gives us a sense of what may happen in 2023? Yeah, great. Thank you very much, Ravi, for having me. And uh, that's a great question. I do like the way you described it, you know, in terms of risk assessment and in particular how the government might have changed its own perception of how the people who it governed right, may have changed their own risk assessment. So there is a sort of like a feedback loop in there. I would say that uh, of the change in policies, especially in such a dramatic term, part of that would, would I cannot rule out the uh, impact of protest. But I think there are broader factors at play, specifically because of the realization of the opportunity cost of zero COVID policies. Because uh, the projection of the Chinese economic growth, or at least the target at the beginning of the year was set around 5.5%. And then now people realized that, that, well, you know, all sorts of indications are saying that suggested that the Chinese economy could at most achieve somewhere between 3% to 3.3%. So this basically means that the opportunity cost of zero COVID policies is about 2% or 2.2% GDP. So back of the envelope calculation, right? The, Chinese, the size of the Chinese economy is 17.7, less, slightly less than 18 uh, trillion US dollars. So 2% of that is somewhere around $680 billion or more than that, which is larger than the size of the economy of Sweden or Belgium. Right. Mm. So basically, the, the opportunity cost is huge. And the compounded with that, these, uh, the loss of economic growth is being felt directly by the Chinese people. And this is translated into all this, not just the Tangping, but also the Chinese, you know, in Chinese universities. People started to you know, walk their paper dogs. People started to lose confidence in their economic future. So I think this really played back into the entire policy-making loop, uh, policy, policy-making feedback circle, making people realize, at least the policy bureau members starting to realize the necessity and the urgency of focusing on economic recovery. Wow. I'd like to come back to economics and spend a bit more time on it, but just another beat on the protest. Susan, I'll come to you for this. Um, in your sense of, you know, having watched China for, for decades now, um, where do you see the social contract um, with the Chinese people in terms of, are they happy? Um, will they need to come out and protest again uh, next year? I mean, and obviously the people who did protest, one imagines given China's surveillance capabilities are all locked away at this point. Um, so, uh, you know, what, 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 do you, what are you expecting? What should we expect next year when it comes to further... Uh, uprisings or or questioning of Xi Jinping's authority? Well, I was very surprised to see protests um, against central government policy because it's it's something that we haven't seen since Tiananmen. And uh, we see a lot of protests, but they're quite small and the issues are mostly local. But um, and I think probably Xi Jinping was quite surprised, too. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at uh, projected, thinking again about 2023, projecting 
the future risks to the Chinese Communist Party and to Xi himself, I thought they were much more a public split in the leadership, you know, um, because most authoritarian regimes fall top down, not bottom up. And I never ex really expected these protests because the surveys that we have done at China Data Lab of 21st Century China Center showed that Xi Jinping's popularity appeared to be holding up with the urban public. Although we did find in our last survey that um, many people did want to see the zero COVID policy adjusted. So they had some complaints about it. But I was surprised to see these protests. Now, projecting into the future, I think that given the uh, amount of repression that's been leveled at the protesters and the way any organizer or the real activists will be punished, it would really be uh, the rare uh, young person or migrant laborer who would now come out on the street because they did achieve their main objective of getting the policy changed. And I, it's hard to see another issue that would be likely to bring them out on the streets. So I, my prediction for next year is we will not see more protests. James, do you agree with that? I mean, how much of these protests do you see as isolated to zero COVID? How much of it was other issues that may erupt again uh, in 2023? I think that there was a long-term frustration with the way that China has been moving backwards uh, in terms of personal freedoms, in terms of uh, openness to the world that was ex definitely fed into the protests. With that, I think that Susan is probably right in that without a clear motivating factor, it's very hard to get people out on the streets when the risks are so high. I could just about see COVID itself becoming that factor if the situation got really, really bad. If you had, you know, um, old people dying in mass, hospitals mm. overwhelmed, and so on, you might get a, a a volume of anger that produced like big protests again against the failure to prepare. Especially because the government hung so much of its credibility on being competent handlers of the pandemic. So, um, James, just to jump in there, because there's a, a question just came in from a subscriber, which is kind of exactly where you were headed, um, Stephen Moore. Um, wanted to ask whether the quote-unquote poor decision-making, his words around COVID, um, will destabilize public perception of a competent government. It depends a lot on how the next you know, two to four months turn out. Mm -hmm. If they can keep the deaths relatively low, um, if they can push, the, if they can push most of the the worst out to the countryside, which is very invisible to most uh, chi urban Chinese, and is, and where also the the gap in healthcare is the most acute, um, then I think they can just about manage this. Um, mm -hmm. If they they can keep the numbers artificially low officially, not acknowledge it, people will still complain about it in in private. But unless it hits a kind of critical volume. Um, a lot of people will also be able to to believe well, you know, the the, gov the the government handled the problem. The government managed the the problem mm. okay in the end. Mm. Um, and the the thing I think we have to remember is that the the cost 
when, when we look at these things, it's easy to say, well, you know, China can always crack down on the protests. It can always do this. It can always censor more. It can always do more repression. But every time they do this, there's a cost, a cost not only in terms of the psychic well-being, as it were, for people, because people are aware that this is happening. Chinese have a sense of politics in the same way that, you know, the British do about class. As I've said before, that they even if they they're not able to exactly pinpoint it, they know where they know when politics is in the room when it affects it's, it's, decisions. It's power is and it's not being talked about or deployed. Exactly. So there's this. So when times tighten, that they that they aware of it. Um, but also there's this huge cost to governance itself because when you're putting all your time and energy into repressing people, whether it's keeping them locked up for zero COVID or stripping every mention of something off the internet, you're taking that time and energy away from actually doing the business of government. Mm. Um, so we see the ways in which Chinese police, for instance, don't really solve crimes anymore. Uh, they they uh, shut people down and they complain mm. about it. They they would prefer to be solving crimes, in fact. Mm. So you have this, this dynamic whereby the governance, governance as a whole gets worse in times of repression um, and this year was that was particularly bad because everybody was also preparing for the party congress and mm. that took away their time. So now yeah. you're going to have a system flooded with COVID and with the responses to COVID and the ordinary stuff of governance is going to be neglected once again. Mm. So let's talk about some of that ordinary stuff. Um, we, we've gone through COVID and the protests. I want to spend some time now on the economy um, and then take us uh, towards foreign policy issues also want to talk about tech decoupling uh, Taiwan, if we can. Um, Zoe, I'll bring you back in. Uh, there's also the broader issue of China's lagging economy, linked, of course, to everything we've been discussing so far. Um, Beijing recently delayed one a key economic meeting uh, as well. Um, what can you tell us about where some of their economic sort of policy making might be headed um, in 2023? Uh, what are the key indicators for us to be looking out for? Yeah, thank you, Ravi. Um, I have to say that uh, for 2023, if, if I only look at the domestic factors, I would pay, to, pay attention to two specific variables. And I think these two variables might determine the outcome of the Chinese economy next year. The first would be in the immediate term, it would be related to China's COVID response and crisis management, or go back to your phrasing of it, which is uh, risk management. And then the other would be China's economic adjustment and economic stabilization policy. More specifically, I'm talking about industrial policy because industrial policy in the coming years, are, are in not just next year, but in the coming years during pre President Xi Jinping's next, five, uh, next term, is probably going to largely impact which sectors are going to get easy and the most amount of government support. And that those sectors are obviously apparent these days, you know, for the app technology, chips making, manufacturing, and so on and so forth. And I think the interactions between COVID response and crisis management, as well as economic stabilization policies are going to determine um, the Chinese economic uh, outlook in the coming year. And in terms of the sectors, that potentially would drive the Chinese economic recovery, I would pay attention to three specific sectors. One is the infrastructure, secondly is advanced manufacturing and service, and then thirdly would be uh, energy sectors, specifically renewable sectors. I'm surprised you didn't mention real estate at all. Um, how is that sector performing? 
in China and also, um, you know, in the rest of the world, all of us have been so worried about inflation. Um, how, what, what are Chinese public concerns towards inflation like, Zoe? Yeah, great, great question, Ravi. I'm I'm happy that I'm uh, glad that you bring in real estate. And personally, I'm I subscribe to the camp that is relatively pessimistic about uh, real estate development in China for two reasons. One, just the pure number wise, investment in real estate has consistently going down. Even the latest statistics. Uh, for November, it went down, both in terms of investment as well as the transaction volume. And then secondly, the other reason I'm not, past, uh, not optimistic is because China has went through long-term uh, persistent decline of arable or farmland starting from the, uh, during, the, during 2013 and 2019. And if you look at President Xi Jinping's emphasis, especially since the beginning of this year, he has been emphasizing food security, food security, food security. And the uh, a primary risk factor that might hurt China's self food security, in particular self food self-sufficiency, is really the decline or the reduction in arable land. So that's the two reasons. I, if I'm the investor, I'm not going to invest in real estate in China. And mm. in terms of inflation, uh, right now, China's latest number shows that kind of the CPI actually relative, uh, increased by uh, less than 1%, which is dramatically different from the situation uh, elsewhere in the world. And on top of that, um, core CPI, uh, actually, in terms of, you know, food prices and all that, meant relatively stable. Yes, people complain about, you know, pork prices went up so high, but compared to the West, it's still re relatively uh, okay. So from that perspective, China, the Chinese economy right now does not really have inflationary pressure the same way as the West has. That's the reason why I think the in the coming year, the Chinese government as well as the PBO, the People's Bank of China are going to implement expansionary or stimulus policy measures. And uh, we are probably also going to see additional use uh, or an increase in quota for new local government special bond. Um, some estimate uh, some estimate that the new quota might uh, go exceed renminbi 4.4 trillion renminbi, which is about 630 billion US dollars. Mm -hmm. So all these inflationary measure, measures as the Chinese economy uh, coming out of the COVID, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about how Chinese recovery might actually uh, complicate a lot of the Western measures to suppress inflation. Mm, just fascinating. Susan, I want to bring you in here. Curious about the economic indicators you'll have an eye on uh, in 2023. And as you mull that, I want to also move us towards a little bit um, about the impact of what I think is one of the biggest stories uh, of the last couple of months, where the U.S. rolled out these really tough um, sanctions on China, um, limiting its ability to access uh, semiconductors, um, you know, up and down the supply chain, compelling uh, companies and countries around the world um, from allowing China to access high-end computing. Um, what's your sense, Susan, of where that might head um, in 2023? How much will it hurt uh, China? Uh, well, U.S. restrictions, U.S. sanctions on technology uh, and it, restrictions on Chinese investments in the United States, on 
visas for Chinese students who want to come and study in the United States. All of these um, efforts to build a wall in between us and China after decades of very productive integration between the two systems, I believe will continue uh, from the U.S. side because of our own domestic politics. Uh, you see the Republican majority in the House is raring to go. Uh, there's a new select committee in the House uh, led by Republicans, which uh, is already declaring its intention to tighten up those restrictions because of the China threat. Mm. And uh, so I, it's hard for me to see that we're going to be able to have the kind of objective, dispassionate debate in Washington or even in the rest of the country about what are the trade-offs of these policies? What are the costs and benefits to America's own competitiveness? Um, I believe it's a form of overreaction to China's overreach. Uh, and it will make things more difficult for China. Now, the big question is how other countries uh, respond to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe that the United States would be more able to get other countries uh, doing the same thing if these policies were more um, prudent, meaning mm -hmm. it's one thing to go after advanced semiconductor manufacturing, which is kind of the linchpin of the whole advanced technology economy. But it's another if you start going after biomedical research, um, you know, all of AI uh, and uh, everything else in emerging technologies. That would be, I think, so clearly an effort to just degrade uh, and trip up China's own development. So, of course, it's going to cause and already has caused intense anti-Americanism in China, but also it's going to make other countries reluctant to go as far as we're going, especially because so much of it is really kind of American nationalist mm. protectionism as well, which mm. has deleterious impacts on uh, the tech businesses of other countries. Um, Susan, we've, we've uh, many of us have read your book, Overreach. It looks like this could be uh, part two, uh, the opposite side of America overreaching. Um, James, let me bring you in. Um, I, I'm curious for your take about how much these um, latest sanctions actually hurt. Um, recently, um, I was at a dinner with a senior U.S. official who um, was uh, there when Biden met Xi Jinping in Bali and claimed that by, uh, that Xi Jinping said, oh, these things aren't hurting us at all. We couldn't care less, um, which was either bluster uh, or maybe he perhaps didn't understand the, the full import of, of what these sanctions could mean. Um, what's your take on that? And as, as you're mulling that, 
uh, jumbo question, I also want to point to FP subscriber Amanda Morrison's question. Um, she asks, you know, how do we protect supply chains um, from volatility and ethical concerns without heading down a road of increased isolation and autarky? All of that, James, at you. So I think she doesn't understand the economy or technology very well. You know, we we have this vision that Chinese leaders are these, you know, supposed efficient technocrats and so on. But she literally got the job because he is the son of a previous leader um, and because he has skills that are honed to survive and to thrive within an extremely brutal internal party system. Um, he's surrounded himself by yes with yes men, and again, uh, it could be bluster. It could have been ignorance, but these measures are clearly already hurting Chinese companies, and we've seen many, many complaints from Chinese companies um, behind the scenes and from their American partners about this. There's a big lobbying effort going on in DC to try and get some of these measures reversed or to find loopholes by the American side of the the industry. Um, I, every conversation I've had about China with people inside the government in DC in the last few months has been about finding ways to hamstring the Chinese um, Chinese economy and development. And you have a bunch of very smart, very nerdy people who looking to all corners of US law and trade policy and so on, um, who feel unleashed, um, who feel that they had that they had years of not being able to bring the weight against China that China in their view deserved for its own extremely obstreperous policies against the United States um, and are now delving into these, you know, obscure corners of the U.S. Co code where it turns out that, like, the postal office can control the biomedical industry by a 1923 law, you know, how mm. U.S. law works in this sort of ridiculous piled, piled upon piled way. Mm. So, you know, that... That could be that could be dangerous overreach, as Susan suggests. They're definitely thinking in very zero sum terms, mm. and I think that's going to stick around for a long time. Like DC had, you know, in 2016, I was on the hawkish side of um, the DC debate. I would say I'm squarely in the midpoint, maybe a little bit towards the dovish side at this point because it's just shifted so much and so fast. And so I guess the question is, how do we, you know? How do we do? How do we protect supply chains without sort of going into autarky and so on? I, I don't think that we do. I think that this is the course that the United States has set on, and you know that means you're going to be paying twenty to twenty five percent more for your television. Um, it means the end of an era of cheap electronics and the kind of de dependence upon China that um, the U.S. consumer, in many ways, benefit benefited from even if you know the u.s worker arguably lost out at the same time uh, and, and the global consumer i would say uh would, would it would hurt them much more uh given their price sensitivities yes exactly you think of sort of well indian mobile phones of course Ravi, which you know um uh far more than me about i think that that a lot of that was coming out of china a lot of the a lot of the sort of you know midpoint of economic technological development was coming out of china and that's really going to shift and at the same time china is shifting from you know having been an eight percent growth economy to being a three or four percent growth economy and mm. that comes with a whole lot of geopolitical and political concerns as well mm, indeed can i jump in here to say Please something do. About, yes. um will also pay a big cost in the 
uh, breaking of the collaborative ties between Chinese and American scientists, which have produced some of the most important discoveries over the past few decades. The best articles and the best journals and uh, and undoubtedly helped cure diseases and things that are of great importance, not just to Americans and Chinese, but to people around the world. But uh, preserving that type of collaboration in the face of the uh, Justice Department, FBI, the China Initiative name is gone, but the attitude and the effort remains to try to uh, somehow prevent the leakage of knowledge mm. from American universities and companies to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, that paranoia has also gotten very acute on the Chinese side, um, where we've seen one of the reasons why we haven't seen the government take up the offers of vaccines of help from the from the United States has been because of this kind of bioparanoia that's crept into the system. For years, you've had these ideas that America is supposedly building genetic weapons to target Han Chinese. This was all over sort of Chinese um, um, military documents and popular uh, popular conspiracy theories that seem to have a real hold within the government. They doubled down on that at the start of the pandemic when they wanted to blame America for the pandemic, or at least claim that it didn't start in Wuhan. Um, and now I think that's really in, infected the system. Um, and it's very hard in in what is basically a Stalinist system to some degree at the moment to break yourself out of that trap of, of paranoia where your own propaganda is feeding back into what you have to believe or pretend to believe internally. Wow. I want to move us towards now uh, a little bit of Taiwan, also U.S.-China relations more broadly. Um, Before I take us there, I'm just going to name check a few of our subscribers who've sent in just really great questions. Can't get to all of them, but um, many of them deal with uh, the larger U.S.-China relationship. So Stuart Kaplan, Louis Friedman, Stephen Schlesinger, La Cita, uh, Louis Casimir. I see all of your questions I'm not going to read them all out, but more broadly, just to take us now to Taiwan uh, as an issue, uh, you know, sticking point between the U.S. and China right now, um, but also that broader relationship. Uh, James, you first. Um, what what indicators are you looking out for when it comes to uh, any movement in the needle of the likelihood of China maybe trying to uh, attack Taiwan? Um, so ironically enough, I feel I have to bring us back to COVID yet again, the, the dominant theme of the of the year. Um, as long as there's a massive domestic crisis at home, we're not going to see any movement against Taiwan because it simply ups the risk threshold too much. You can't take on a massive international challenge at the same time as you have a massive domestic challenge, unless the domestic challenge becomes so threatening that the regime might collapse otherwise, and you have a sort of Hail Mary Falkland situation where a regime attempts to reassert its domestic status by uh, fulfilling a long, uh, a long-held nationalist objective. I think that's very unlikely. I think that, or, that again, they're going to be so occupied with coping with the economic and um, pandemic crises that they're not going to have a lot of spare energy for Taiwan. Um, what we should be looking at is, do they believe that they can get the um, the 
the Kuomintang, the um, Chinese, the uh, opposition party in Taiwan, to do what they want, because that's been one of the kind of peacekeeping factors for a long time has been the belief that they could eventually secure a peaceful re- peaceful reunification by a mixture of coercive and political means that ended up in a one country, two systems type deal that brought mm. Taiwan back to the mainland. Now, that's very, very unlikely because the Taiwanese public emphatically does not want it. But on the, on the other hand, the KMT is probably going to get back into power at some point because that's the nature of, you know, de- of democracy. And I think the Chinese might be overestimating just how much the KMT can do and indeed how much they want to to be to be pro-Chinese because while they're much more um, pro-Chinese than the uh, than the current government, they're they're not. They do not, in fact, want to be part of one China, especially after looking at how Hong Kong was treated. But I think it's possible that Beijing will delude itself into thinking that they can have a, a political a political route to reunification, and that will help delay any kind of conflict. And I mean, I hope well, they stick to that delusion. I think it's a good it's a good one for everyone. Right, indeed. Um, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to take last thoughts first from Susan and then from Zoe. Um, Susan, uh, on the U.S.-China relationship, what are the key markers, indicators, things that you will be looking out for in 2023 uh, that may tweak or change or adapt the nature of the relationship? Well, what I'm looking for is a return to some good old-fashioned diplomacy, um, which basically came to a halt for six years, four under Trump and two under Biden. And now that the two presidents have met in Bali, I see a little ray of hope that the two sides, the leaders, um, have their own domestic reasons for being motivated to uh, resume diplomatic efforts. Of course, COVID again was very disruptive uh, because Xi Jinping was holed up in China. He didn't travel for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that they have met, I hope that the leaders will continue meeting, at least at the margins of other international meetings. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken is going. And I think it's uh, if the two sides can uh, signal to one another's publics as well as their own that they have the flexibility, the willingness to make some compromises in order to stabilize the relationship. That will help counteract the drag of domestic politics on the two sides on U.S.-China relations. So I'm, uh, so that's. I'm looking for diplomacy. I have to say, I, I'm agnostic about whether or not we can actually induce Xi Jinping to moderate any of the policies that his highly centralized dictatorship mm. has undertaken. Mm. Um, but at least I believe we need to test it. Mm. I don't think we have tested it because we really haven't tried for six years. So let's give it a try, see what happens. And if the Chinese side is continues to be uh, rigid, dogmatic, um, then we know, then I'll probably shift back over to the more hawkish side myself 
right. uh, James, uh, because it'll look hopeless. But I don't agree with so many other people who have concluded that it's hopeless. I think we need to give right. it a try. And I should also point out when Biden met Xi Jinping in Bali, um, I was in Sharm el-Sheikh at the COP27, and there was just such encouragement that the two sides had at least agreed to yeah. resume the climate sort of talks that they were having, um, which uh, I know when when it was off, uh, that was immensely worrying to uh, um, anyone who cares about the climate, but also countries around the world. Zoe, I'm going to give you the last word, um, just from you know where you sit, how you look at the U.S.-China relationship, um, you know, and you know with your sort of expertise on economics as well. What is your sense of the markers you'll be looking out for? Um, but also, I'm curious, uh, you know, which one is sort of leading things? Is is the fact that Chinese people themselves are are more nationalistic today than they were 15 or 20 years ago? There's more anti-U.S. sentiment today than there was 15 or 20 years ago. Does that end up directing policy uh, or the other way around? Oh, that's a great question, Ravi. Thank you. In terms of the things that I would like to uh, watch out for, or uh, I, I would say there are reasons to be optimistic and there are reasons to be pessimistic. So at the aggregate level, I would cautiously hope, keep my expectation low so that uh, I'm not going to get disappointed and uh, no disappointment means we can keep talking, right? <laughs> so reasons to be optimistic. I think financial market cooperation and further financial market integration might be making some concrete step going forward, specifically because PCAOB earlier today announced that for the first time in history, they are able to uh, have full access to audited Chinese companies. And this is going to, on the one hand, sort of um, mitigate or even um, not not completely re remove, but reduce significantly reduce the risk of delisting more than two hundred companies in the in the in the U.S. stock exchanges. So I think that's great. And then secondly, in terms of issue areas, I agree with you in terms of you know climate change, food security. Those are the two concrete areas where the United States and China can at least keep conversation going, talk about how to be uh, responsible, great powers, and uh, live up to the expectation of the other nations in the world. So those are two reasons to be op optimistic. Reasons to be pessimistic, and I think this might potentially derail other conversations, which is the broader discussion of decoupling, especially with, with regard to technology. So I think if Xi Jinping is optimistic with regard to, well, you know, this is not necessarily going to hurt me, hurt China a, a lot. And I'm, I cannot guess what, how he thinks about things. But if I look at China's track record, when China was established and the development of China's own indigenous science and technology, it was established under isolation. And when China, uh, you know, de detonated atomic bombs and all that, it was under uh, during the Cold War era. So if we are talking about this is a return to Cold War era or even more stringent type of uh, technological uh, containment trying to suffocate the China's mm -hmm. domestic indigenous capacity, I think it is not, it's not that China has unheard of. However, the cost is going to be tremendously high for China. Therefore, I'm going to be pessimistic along uh, in, in, in that area. And in terms of for your last question, I think it's, I, I think right now the, we are at the moment where it's China, Chinese people's own loss of confidence in the Chinese economy dominates their sentiment. 
It's not about we are pessimistic about or they are angry about Americans, we are angry about the Japanese. If they are really pessimistic about their own economic future. So that's why I think the, there is the urgency of the government to put uh, their, their, their emphasis on economic recovery. Just fascinating. We could go on and on, but I know you have to leave and we promised everyone we'd, we'd wrap this up in 45 minutes. So Zoe Liu, Susan Shirk, James, thank you all for joining us. We'd love to have you back on. You've been listening to FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com slash live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum, Rosie Julin, and Yure Wu. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>